You are listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about Citizens, please visit citizensbhm.com. Today, uh, it's talking about a lot of things, but primarily, we're still talking about money, just like last week. And one of the difficulties of preaching and teaching on money is people got just kind of their defenses up. Before I even get going, no matter what I say, no matter what I do, I have noticed over time that people's defenses are so high that no matter what I say, it kind of bounces off the armor. They're like, that was cute, but little change happens. So I want to do something. I want to help lower your defenses with the truth, the truth of what's going on here at Citizens, because with your defenses up, my fear is that you will miss out on the precious words of Jesus. Look what our Lord tells us. He makes it plain in Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We got to lower our defenses or we're going to miss Jesus altogether. We got to let the drawbridge down. We can't live in a a castle that only hears what it wants to hear, but rather hears from the Lord. So here are the few concerns I've just heard over the years, and here are the common ones. I want to hit them with a little bit of truth. Man, we're preaching on money because the church must need some money. Well, actually, Citizens is doing great. It's doing great spiritually. Things are thriving. People are growing. People are coming to know the Lord, and we're doing well financially too. That's not the most important thing, but... It's a good thing. And we try to preach on money just as often as the Bible teaches on money. No more, no less. That's just right. It's like the middle porridge of the three bears. Second thing, man, we're preaching on money because the church and the pastor, he only cares about money. And here's the truth. Your giving doesn't directly affect my pay. It's not like you gave extra this week and so Justin like gets extra. That's not how it works. There's a big budget. It's submitted to elders. It's submitted to our CPA. Our elders set my pay and salary from that. They do a great job. I'm really thankful for them. But to keep it 100 with you, to be all the way real, I would make the same in a secular vocation. Maybe more. If citizens just collapse tomorrow, I'd be super sad. The mission I feel like God had called me to, man, that would be a a devastating thing. Losing the the relationships and the pleasure and privilege of being your pastor would be very sad. But financially, little would change for the Carls. My wife works. She has a great job. I would just find another job. It would be sad, but I ain't like preaching to make it financially with you. If I planted a church in order to get rich, I'm both dumb and disappointed. Okay? (laughs) kind of a one-two. And this last one, these first two are about me, and hopefully I can help get your defenses down, but the third one, only you can take down this defense. And it goes like this. Money doesn't really have an effect on me, well, other than I never seem to have enough. Everyone thinks someone else is rich. Everyone thinks someone else, not them, has a problem with money. 
We live in the wealthiest large nation on earth. We have the greatest total wealth of any nation on the planet. Yet currently, as of a survey this summer, seven out of 10 Americans express that they are, quote, very stressed about money on a daily basis. The amount of funds in our country has not changed how much we worry, stress, or the word Jesus uses in this passage, have anxiety over. The amount of money doesn't change that because it's a state of the heart. And Jesus is telling us everyone who trusts in money will end up anxious about money and eventually disappointed. In the context of all of Luke 12, what we've been preaching on for a couple weeks here is that we are to fear the Lord first. That our attentions, our affections, our heart is to be towards the Lord first and do not trust in money. Movement one to the Lord, movement two, don't trust in money because it's easy to do. Don't go build those barns. And here comes movement three, verse 22. Therefore, this is our Lord speaking. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. Oh, heavenly music, just a little backdrop. Hey, we saving money. We split in a church. <laughs> they, neither, they have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? And Jesus has taken some big swings here. We live in an incredibly anxious world. Some have said and researched and said, oh, millennials and Gen Z, they're the most anxious generation of all time. How they come to that conclusion, it's tough to say, but it's out there. Yet Jesus says people need not to be anxious and worried for three specific reasons. One, life is more than things. Just simply, life is more than stuff. Life is more than food for our stomachs, our clothes for our body. These are important things, necessary things. If you don't have clothes, if you don't have food, you ain't gonna last all that long. But Jesus isn't saying that they don't matter at all. He's saying they won't be helped with our worry. And that these things are important, and that's why God actually cares for them for you. They're important enough that God actually cares. And rather than your worry, God actually has care for it. He has something better than your worry. And he's teaching us through the ravens that God is more than enough. Life is more than stuff, but God's care is more than enough just like the ravens, just like the sparrows, just like the lilies, God shows his care in creation. It is a good, healthy practice, Christian, to go get in creation. Now, if you're my wife, that might mean like walking through the backyard. Not much of an outdoorsy woman. Very indoorsy. That would be her inclination. For some of you, you need to hike Ruffner. You know, that's a whole thing. You need to get in creation, whatever that looks for you, to be able to look around and go, this thing is big, a lot bigger than me. And if God made all this, he's even bigger than anything I've ever seen in my life. He is telling them, look at the ravens, look at the lilies, look at the sparrows, look around. 
You're worried about what's right here and the world's really big out there. And there's a God behind that incredibly big world. And even though these creatures have limited abilities, these creatures are small, they don't have barns, and they do work and do their best, but ultimately God is the provider of every living thing. So much more for you, people made in his image. And yes, in this broken world with our broken bodies, there's a bunch to be afraid of. There's no need. I mean, watch the news. It's enough to paralyze us. And I know a lot of us feel that way. That life just feels terrifying to get out of bed. And to be honest, if God wasn't real or God didn't care, life should be terrifying. But what Jesus is saying, step into the reality that that's not the case. That God is real and that God does care. And the gospel of Jesus Christ proves it because God steps into our scary world. And he endures the very worst of us and gets on a cross for our sins. The thing we should be worried about most and dies for us. And rises from the dead as a conquering king to lead us into a new kind of life with God. And this takes humility to embrace, that no matter how busy or smart we are as a raven, or just don't have that much control. The Christian can humbly admit that they don't have to pretend that everything's under their control. Jesus says, in fact, you can't even add an hour to your life. In fact, your control is very limited. Your control is very limited. Even though you can make choices, your control of life It's real limited. And our limited control works in two ways. First, God designed us in his image, but we're designed as creatures, not the creator. Have you ever thought you were designed to be limited? You were designed to be limited. Adam and Eve were limited people before sin. They weren't like a superman and superwomen. They didn't have infinite powers. They weren't like God. You were made to be limited and God to be unlimited. It was set up for your dependence on God. The modern American myth would be saying, you are going to be independent of all things. You're just gonna be an island to yourself and it's all gonna work out. And the Bible tells a different story. That even before sin, you were made to be in a dependent relationship with God. And that these moments of anxiousness are moments to turn to God in dependence and prayer and remember his care. Remember, if dependence is the goal, then weakness is our advantage. Having moments, every human has these moments of swelling nervousness, swelling anxiety, swelling worry, swelling concern. That is just a part of the human experience. But God is saying, if dependence is the goal, then that weakness is our advantage. It's a moment to turn to our Lord and remember his care for us and our lack of control. Philippians 4 expands on how this works. Goes like this. Remember the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need. Do you know that God is listening and cares? It's saying worry's gonna come, but you have something you can do with it. You can tell God what you need, thank him for all he's done, and then promise you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. 
How much of us want to Google things till we have a perfect understanding and seeking of peace? It's called WebMD. And it's not that we forsake knowledge and become anti-intellectual or anything like that, but start to catch yourself. What do you do when that feeling comes and starts to swell in you? Do you eat? Do you Google? Do you complain? I don't know. We're all different. I got some moves. I know my move. If I get real stress, I'm watching Star Wars. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, the prequels weren't that bad. Let me just watch them. And the binge begins. I'm in a dark place. You know, Anakin could have chosen another way. Anyways. God knows we're limited. He knows we live in a broken world. He knows there's worrisome things about. But God wants to be bigger in our heart than our worries. And he wants to be the place, not where you feel despised by God for your worries, but he wants to be the place where you put your worries. To say, God, I'm putting them at the altar. Lord, I'm putting them at your feet. Lord, I'm putting them into your hands. Do you notice every anxious person who comes to Jesus in the gospel of Luke, he doesn't go, oh, you're too anxious, get away. He goes, hey, how can I help and now follow me? There's an invitation to an entirely new kind of life. And 1 Peter 5 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, 6 and 7, and it says it this way. Verse 6, Humble yourselves. Part of this is a humbling to say God is really big and I'm really not. Humble yourselves. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, look at his power, look at his glory. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. When we humble, humble ourselves under God's power, it actually leads to an exaltation that God's power is shown in our life. And then verse seven, casting all anxieties on him. Not that you never have them, but that you do something with them. That you don't let anxiety run your life. How much of our life is spent running just from this clock of anxiety just cooking in us? Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He wants them. He wants all of them. Not just your sins, your worries too. By the way, your hopes and dreams, positively as well. In humility, we can see the bigness of God, see our relative limits, and throw our anxieties on God. When my daughter, who's eight, uh, she is like bold as a lion now, so she could take like a little dose of humility that the world is, you know, maybe take a break and take a couple lessons. But when she was little, she wasn't like that. She used to get so nervous when she was three, four, five, and she would shake, and she wouldn't want to try any new things. And so what we did is we boiled this verse down, a favorite of daddy's, into a really simple thing. I would get down on, on my knees. I would put my hands on her shoulder. I would comfort her, because that, when you're that little with your kids, you're basically God. You know, quit parenting. Zero to four, you're basically God. If you don't feed them, they die. You are the model for who God is in their life. No matter all the stories you tell them, great, but you're the model. Putting your hands on her shoulder, looking her eye to eye and saying, hey, throw your anxieties, throw your worry on the Lord and he'll catch it because he cares for you. And we started to do throw, catch, care 
over and over and over. And over time, she became less anxious or at least knew what to do with it. And the same goes for me as I'm still saying the same thing to me all the time. You actually don't grow out of that, you grow into it. When you see mature over believers in the Lord, that has nothing to do with age really, but they're mature in the Lord. You see them as people who capture their thoughts. That's what 1 Corinthians 10 tells us. It says, we take captive every thought and make it obedience to Christ. I mean, 2 Corinthians 10, 5. That they don't let their thoughts live rent-free in their head at all. That thoughts of anxiety, thoughts of worry, those things aren't around just to run the town. That at some point, they're submitting them to God, they're taking them captive, and they're saying, everything in my life is going to obey Jesus, including my thought life. Our limits actually help us live under God's mighty hand as his people as we choose to cast our cares on Christ. Corey Ten Boom uh, was a Christian during World War II, and she uh, would be imprisoned by the Nazis when they invaded her country for hiding and caring for Jewish families and caring for the disabled who are likely to be executed by the Nazis. And she went to a concentration camp for about a year and ended up surviving But here's what she said about prayer, that any concern too small to be turned into a prayer is too small to be made into a burden. Some of us think it has to be huge to take it to God in prayer. And God is saying, I want your moment by moment worries. Just as Paul said, don't worry about anything, pray about everything. There's nothing too small for you just to say, Lord, I'm limited. Here I go again. Lord, help me. You can go there. So whether you're battling the evil of Nazis or the daily stress of life, God's vision is for us to turn to him. And I said, there's two parts to our limits. The first one was that we're made limited. The second is we have to combat the ravages of sin that have made us awfully limited. The Christian view of yourself is you're not just a soul, you're not just a body, you're both. Your spiritual life affects your physical, your physical life affects, your spiritual affects the physical, your physical affects the spiritual. And sin has broken both. And it's evidence we're broken physically by we don't live forever. We die. That wasn't the plan in the garden. There's your body is under sin and broken by sin, including your mind, including your organs, your bones, every single part of you. Christians are just one person. We don't separate the two things out. Therefore, you may need to address the effects of the fall, both physically and spiritually. That your journey to experience less anxiety is not just a matter of spiritual maturity, but also you may need to address physical things in your life. Because I know for a lot of us, it's not just a spiritual battle, but just life brings a response of anxiety that it just feels like it's erupting from inside of them. You're not even conscious of what all the thoughts are. It's just happening to you. And so physical things might need to be addressed. And it could be as simple as, hey, you're not in college anymore. You probably need to sleep. (laughs) You know, like you want to be anxious, stay up all night, night after night after night. Uh, It might be as simple as 
diet, exercise, routine, not taking on too much stuff at work, forming new relationships that have a healthier balance of people not dumping on you all the time, learning some coping skills. But that physical journey also might be pretty complex. That you start to ask questions of what has happened in my story that makes me feel so anxious? That what happened in my home, what happened in growing up, what's happened in my adult life that has brought on real feelings of anxiety that are not easy to capture. That Instead, they're very, very difficult to capture and turn over to the Lord. And that might need therapy, might need counseling, might need just deep friendships to share. It might need medicine. Whatever that journey is that you would feel the peace of God spiritually and physically in your body, it's probably going to be a journey. And is that, what's that journey going to be? Probably spiritual and physical to some, some degree for all people. There's not an exact equation, but it'll probably be as unique as your story is. But in that, instead of seeing yourself as like, oh, I'm a real wreck. No, God's doing a real redemption. God is doing a remarkable healing in your life and will probably involve others in the healing for whatever it is. Big problems of lust, addiction, gambling, whatever. You know, God wants to do a work in you, but also wants to do a work with others to make a new you. You're a new creation and you're becoming newer and newer in your heart day by day. So here's what I want to encourage you. Don't give up. Don't give up. And instead, let Jesus' truth today be freeing and encouraging that, yes, I have limited control by design and by the awfulness of sin. It's a one-two. But Jesus cares for me. And he says, don't worry about my life. Because Jesus is really reiterating a parable of the sower from Luke 8. That the, that the sower goes out and throws the gospel seed, but then Luke 8, 14, using the very same word for care, concern, anxiety, using the same word, says this, and as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, are choked by the cares, anxieties, and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Same word there as our passage today. And notice in Luke 8, it ties it specifically to money as well. That if we stay worried about life in the world, especially money, we will tether ourselves to this world and keep us from life from God. If we stay tethered to worrying about money and worrying about our life and worrying about things, it's going to be hard to ever be concerned with the Lord. Don't let the worries, anxieties choke your spiritual life. What a vivid picture of the thorns growing over what's a beautiful garden starting. In Luke 21, Jesus will consistently teach with the same words, use the concerns of life, saying those who are weighed down with the concerns of life, they will be ill-equipped for his return. That God's vision for your life is that you wouldn't be weighed down by all the concerns of life, but that you would do the work of converting your concerns in life to the concerns of the Lord. And what's interesting about Jesus is he's not pictured in the gospels as a carefree dude. He's pictured as a guy who has big emotions and cares about all sorts of things. And I mean, he cares so much. He's so concerned. He's sweating blood and prayer on the eve of the cross. No one would look at this man and say, oh, he doesn't really care about anything. Oh, he's concerned. He's locked in, but he's our model for turning it straight to God. 
He is experiencing intense emotion about what he is about to suffer. He says, Lord, please take this cup from me if there's any other way, but not my will, but your will. As he's sweating blood, he is the model to turn over in this broken, hard world to keep turning it directly over to God in prayer. He's casting his anxieties on the Lord. He's not advocating that we live carelessly or or, or just live with no concerns about anything. In fact, Scripture uses the same word for anxieties kind of a bunch, and it depicts it even in a positive way to be concerned about godly things. Listen here, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, I carry a daily concern, same word, about all the churches he's planted. He cares for God's people. Again, in Philippians 2, he sends uh, Timothy to the Philippians because he says he has the same concern for them as himself. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul speaks again about being concerned about the things of God, that a man should be concerned about the needs of his wife, and that we have a limited amount of concerns to give to anything at all. To push even further, Paul explicitly tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 that we should be concerned or have a worry anxiety for the needs of one another. Not a sinful anxiety, but something that we are engaged. The vision of the Christian life is not a a monk in the mountains, but a person who cares about each other and cares about the things of the Lord overall. We are to care about the things God cares about, knowing God cares for us and our worry won't work. Whatever our worry is attempting to achieve, it just won't work work. And so I have a big question for you. Have you ever flown a kite? Is that yes? One? Way to go, Tyler. (laughs) Very proud of you. Uh, My kids love a kite. And uh, every summer in the backyard or or the beach or wherever, somehow a kite finds me. I, I don't ask for this burden. But somehow a dollar general, like $1 kite that like, (laughs) it's going to have to be a perfect day, (laughs) finds me. And you take it out of the the cellophane package. It's, of course, just cellophane in like two pieces of plastic. And you get the little holder out and the the string, it's already tangled. It like comes pre-tangled. It's actually a puzzle kite. And... Uh, you, you, you get up in the air and then you run around like a fool trying to get the wind into this crappy kite. It, that's just how it works. And, and here's the truth. No matter how hard you run at the cheering of my daughter and son, it's not really going to stay in the air unless there's a breeze. But if there's a breeze, that kite's going to fly and anyone can do it. There's no amount of skill. There's no amount of effort that's going to make it happen. And this is why I I love this idea because being worried about life is just running around without a breeze. You're gonna get real sweaty and get real disappointed. But choosing to concern yourself like Paul does, like Timothy does, like we're instructed to even in this passage to be concerned of the things of the Lord, that's putting your life in the breeze. That suddenly, if you seek after the things of God, you don't spend as much time running around getting sweaty. And suddenly, the kite flies a lot higher and a lot freer than we ever thought it could. Even our flimsy life as a kite. It's about the breeze. It's not about how strong the kite is. 
God's care for us lifts our kite in a broken world. Listen how Jesus kind of cracks the nut of God's care and says, look, I want you to see his care a little closer. I want you to give you something to really believe in. Look at verse 27. Consider the lilies. Those orange flowers that stick up by the side of the road around here in Alabama, those are lilies. There's a lot of lilies, but those are our lilies. Called ditch lilies, where I'm from. (laughs) You can't stop them. And they're pretty enough. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They don't toil or spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, he'll be, or the ditch lily gets about a month, and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Solomon is depicted as the wealthiest man to ever live, and historically he is the wealthiest man to ever live, even by modern calculations. And God also made Solomon the wisest man to ever live, And Jesus is saying, even Solomon, the wealthiest and wisest man to ever live, looked tacky and compared to how I dress a lily. And what he's saying is, look at God's greatness on display, even in the grass of this world. The lily gives you like a month. And that's how great his power and skill is. We must let God be as big as the Bible describes. We got no shot at all this casting our cares on the Lord if we have a small Jesus. We must let the Bible teach us that God is the universe creator, the end times bringer, the eternity setter. And God is more than just great according to the Bible. Look at verse 29. And do not seek what you are to eat and what are your drink, nor be worried for all the nations of the world seek after these things. That's what all the nations of the world, all the peoples, all the people who don't believe in God in this context, they're saying they seek those stuff, but your father knows you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. See, God's greatness is only matched by God's goodness, that he knows your needs and happily meets them. What could be better than that? That's what goodness is, that he knows our needs and he meets them. If God was just great, we have Islam. That's what Allah Akbar means, God is greatest. If God's just great, we have Islam, that God doesn't love me, he might not care, but boy, I better obey. If God is just good, we got lazy universalism. God loves us, but he doesn't really have power to do justice. He's not really in control. So, all right. If God is just great, but not good, that God gives me anxiety. If God is good, but not great, that God gives me anxiety too, because it ultimately means he's not in charge, but I am. And I know I'm not that good, nor that great. 
But if God is great, as Jesus is saying, and God is good, as Jesus is saying, then suddenly we have a God who's personal, who we can actually trust. It's the person we're meeting in Jesus all the way through the gospel. He's great and he's good. He's great and he's good. And what's that mean for us? And that's how God's character changes our concerns. If we trust a God who is big and as good as he is, suddenly our concerns, watch this, this is the gospel magic. If he is as great and as good as the Bible says, suddenly everything you're concerned about, God's concerned about too. And would you rather be the chief worrier about your life or God? Think about it. If God's as great, he can do anything. And he's good, he always does the best thing then everything you are possibly worried about, whether valid or not, God actually cares about it. That God's way of freedom and following him to be free from worry and anxiety is for you to say, I would rather you care about my needs than me. And that's the promise that our Lord is giving him, giving us as characters an invitation to step out of anxiety about worldly things, but rather to start caring about God's kingdom. And you might hear the word kingdom, and you're like, what's that mean? Well, kingdom in the Bible means Jesus is king. It started when he came to earth, and it means he's the king by his rule, which is his word. He's the king by his reign, which is his power. He is the king by his mission is now what we care about. And if God cares about what we need, we can be concerned about God's kingdom. He's saying, I got you. All the stuff you're worrying about in this worldly life, I got you. So now you can give your care and affections to me and my kingdom. It's an exchange we should take every time to say, yes, he's going to care for me. So now I care about what Jesus cares about first. To follow Jesus is learn to be a sheep under the care of the greatest shepherd. Look at verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves of money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys for where your treasure is. There will, be, there will your heart be also. Church, as you read this whole passage, it boils down to Jesus loves you, little flock. You can fear not because you have a shepherd who cares. Jesus ties anxiety back to money again because he knows us. He knows what we're stressing on. And God's a giver. He gives the kingdom without charge. He gives life with God again through Jesus without charge. And it starts a whole paradigm shift for us because worldly people live as an emperor and build an empire. Every dollar of money is how can I build the empire? I'm the emperor. Let me build the empire. And a lot of times that empire is motivated by anxiety. I'll never have enough. Or this will make me happy. Or last week, the lie of leisure. If I have enough, then one day I'll be happy. And Jesus is saying, would you lay down the empire and join a kingdom where you're actually safe and loved? And more than that, you have a chance to do something in this, do something for this kingdom that you don't actually need castles in this life. That you don't actually have to be great as the world says is great. But now what we ultimately give is gain. What we give to God is now gain. The early church put it this way, that to give to the poor is a loan to heaven. 
Have you considered right now as a Christian, you are the poorest you'll ever be? Right now as a Christian, in your earthly life, you are the poorest you will ever be. That one day your heavenly riches will far outweigh your entire lifetime of earnings. That the current exchange rate of giving away your time, your treasure, your talent to blessing others, blessing the poor, blessing your church, even blessing friends, even blessing people in your community, blessing into missions, that all that will exchange rate to treasure in heaven. You ever been to the airport and exchange currency or something or, or travel to another country? The exchange rate is great here. The exchange rate to another country, that money will fade, whether it's in yen or pesos or whatever else. It's going to fade. Euros, it will all fade. But if you exchange your money now for treasure in heaven, your money bag will never wear out. Moth will not destroy, a thief cannot steal. Because in this life, one day you will die and the money will just fade away. Or it'll fade away another way in this broken world. But right now, the Lord's saying, this is his fiscal outlook of things, that every piece of treasure on earth will disappear, but every investment in heaven will pay off richly. That's his outlook. He's saying everyone's scurrying around like ants. Everyone's full of anxiety. Everyone's struggling and all these things. And I'm saying, can you see the world beyond? Jesus is giving us a new outlook to say, trust the God who's king of the now and the beyond and invest and live accordingly. Our hearts will follow our treasure. If you are worried about the things of the world, you are likely heavily invested in the world. If you're really worried about the things of life, you're probably heavily invested on this side of heaven. But if you invest in heaven, your heart will follow and start to be concerned with the things of God. Jesus is inviting you to place your treasure and therefore your heart in heaven through your generous giving by being rich towards God. And here's the kicker. Jesus never asked you to do something that he didn't. Think about it. Jesus never asked you to do something that he didn't. Jesus was the only man ever to stay concerned about the things of God throughout his life, no matter what. So much so that he traded his earth, earthly life on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins so that we would be his treasure forevermore in heaven. Jesus is the ultimate man who fully invested in heaven and fully divested of earth to the point of his own blood. Church, cast your cares on God and let your heart fly like a kite.